following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Last week, we started a series on the Holy Spirit, a series that uh, we've got another five or so weeks to go on. And if you were here last week, then maybe, maybe you've started putting into practice a few of the things that we talked about. We talked about the practice of, when we, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, using He rather than it. You remember that? And I know for some of you that's a bit of a new step and a bit of, a, bit of an awkward step maybe, but m- perhaps you've tried that and talking about He, the Spirit, which helps to make Him personal to us and helps us to experience the Spirit and think about the Spirit and talk about the Spirit as the person of God, which is very important because that's what He is. Uh, Maybe you have started naming the Spirit in different ways as you look around creation. We talked about identifying the Spirit's work in creating and sustaining and upholding all created life. And maybe you've seen some ways and thought about some ways in which the Holy Spirit is at work that you might not have normally attributed to the Holy Spirit. We tend to keep the Spirit in a very small little box, but the Spirit's work is cosmic in its scope, and perhaps you've been able to look around and identify some of those roles that the Spirit has, and maybe you've even started talking to the Holy Spirit. How's that gone? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Tough to get used to at first if you've tried it, addressing the Holy Spirit in your prayers. We're we're kind of used to talking about the Father, talking to the Father, or maybe using the generic God or Lord. Those, those tend to be the common titles. But it's a good routine to get into addressing the Holy Spirit, naming the Spirit even in our prayers. It's okay to do that. It really is. And it helps you, again, have a more personal understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit by actually addressing Him. And of course, when you address one, you're addressing all three. That's the nature of the Trinity. So don't feel like you're excluding the Father and the Son. Any more than when you address the Father, you're not excluding the Holy Spirit or Jesus. It's just simply by naming one, you bring bring the Holy Spirit out of the shadows a bit, which is often where He seems to lurk, bring Him into prominence and name Him and talk to Him. So these are good practices to keep on going with. And uh, I encourage you through the series just to become a little bit more accustomed to talking about the Spirit, talking to the Spirit. So for today, and by the way, study sheets are available for this series if you'd like those. They're on the website. There's a link off the website to those each week. Now for today, we're going to go a little bit further ahead in the biblical story and look at the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Jesus in particular and what implications that has for us. So uh, last week, we're mainly in the Old Testament. This week, I want to start with a passage in the Old Testament and then move to the Gospels. But if you've got your Bible, if you brought it, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. That's where we're going to start this morning. Isaiah chapter 11, and this is one of the key prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, about the coming of this deliverer whom God would send to establish God's kingdom upon the earth and rescue God's people. And as I read these first few verses from Isaiah 11, I want you to think about the relationship between this Messiah who is going to come and the Holy Spirit, what the role of the Spirit will be. With this Messiah. So, Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel 
and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So here's Isaiah talking about the coming of the Messiah, and one of the primary things he talks about is that the Messiah will have the Spirit of God rest upon him. It'll be one of the distinguishing marks of this Messiah when he comes. So in the Old Testament, there's really two great promises that are fulfilled in the New Testament. One is the coming of the Messiah. The other is the coming of the Spirit in a new and a fresh way. And those promises are inseparably linked. When the Messiah comes, he will bring the Spirit. When the Messiah comes, he is going to be filled with the Spirit. And Isaiah says, the way, above all, that you will know when the Messiah has come is the Spirit of God will rest on him. And he will be filled with the Spirit as no other person has ever been in the whole history of humanity. So with that in your mind, now turn over to Luke. I want to look in pretty quick succession at a few verses from the early chapters of Luke. And again, have this Isaiah passage about the Spirit of the Lord resting on the Messiah. Have that in your mind as you read these passages and see what you think. So Luke 1, verse 35. Here is Mary, the mother of Jesus, being visited by the angel Gabriel, being told that she is going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah. And here's how uh, Gabriel describes this in verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, if you were listening to that and you just read the Isaiah 11 passage, what would you think? This is the Messiah, right? This has got to be the guy that Isaiah has just been talking about. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Right from conception, Jesus is filled with the Spirit. Jesus didn't receive the Spirit when he was an adult. He didn't receive it when he was a boy. He received it in the womb. He received it at conception. And this is more than what we talked about last week with the Spirit breathing life into every human being. This is unique. This is without a father, an earthly father. This is the Spirit of God bringing about this man, Jesus, right from the beginning, conceived by the Spirit. So from the beginning of his earthly life, Jesus was a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life is a work of the Spirit conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he's full of the Spirit right from conception. Now, flick over a couple of chapters to Luke 3, and we arrive at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is one of those rare moments in the Bible where all three members of the Trinity show up together. They're quite rare, these Trinitarian moments, and whenever that happens, you know something big is going on. And it is here. The Father is speaking, the Son is being baptized, and the Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus' shoulders. I think there's a, there's a beautiful echo here of the creation story. You remember last week we talked about Genesis 1 and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? And here is the Spirit of God sort of hovering again over the waters. But now it's the baptismal waters of Jesus. And it gives us again the sense there's a new creation story going on here. God is starting creation again. He's bringing forth something new. And the Spirit is going to be intimately involved in this. Now, what's the significance of this moment <clears throat> in terms of the Holy Spirit? Jesus has already received the Spirit in the womb. He's conceived by the Spirit. So he's already filled with the Spirit. 
What's the significance then of this moment when the Holy Spirit comes down and descends on him, rests on him? Well, I think we can get a clue from the book of Judges, funnily enough, the book that we've been studying for most of the year. In the book of Judges, with these deliverers, often at the moment they're about to go into battle for Israel, the Spirit of God comes upon them. Right at that point, when they're about to go into battle and rescue God's people, the Spirit of God comes upon them. And it's quite clear that this is an empowering of the Spirit for the work of deliverance that they are about to undertake. I think it's the same thing that's going on with Jesus at his baptism. He's already been filled with the Holy Spirit, but now the Spirit comes upon him and uniquely and freshly empowers him for his public ministry. Empowers him for the temptations in the wilderness that he's about to go through with Satan empowers him for his work of preaching and teaching and miracles, ultimately empowering him to endure his cru- the crucifixion and suffering. So Jesus is uniquely and distinctly empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that Luke is giving us a pattern here for every single Christian. I think Luke is concerned only to present the life of Jesus. This is pretty unique. I mean, Jesus' conception by the Spirit was unique. What happens to him at his baptism is pretty unique. But Jesus here is filled by the Spirit. At the, at the beginning of his public ministry for all that lies ahead of him at that point. And then look at what we find as soon as Jesus is baptized. Just a little bit further on in, uh, where are we, Luke chapter 3, as soon as Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Jesus, uh, Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Luke again makes a point that the Spirit is leading him into the wilderness. Jesus has been empowered by the Spirit, and now the Spirit's driving him forward. In the power of the Spirit, he resists these temptations of Satan in the wilderness. And then, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He arrives in Nazareth. He gets up in a synagogue on Saturday. And he reads this prophecy from Isaiah, another key prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. And he reads it out here. It is in verse 18 of chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, Every step along the journey, Luke is saying, the Spirit of God is empowering Jesus. The Spirit is leading him. The Spirit is guiding him. The Spirit is resting upon him. Jesus was uniquely and distinctly and personally filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit like no one else has been before him and like no one else will be after him. And right through his ministry then, we can infer that the Spirit is the driving force in Jesus' life and his ministry. The Spirit is giving Jesus the wisdom to teach, to teach these parables and unfold the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The Spirit is enabling Jesus to perform the miracles. Where does he get that power from? From the Spirit of God, because he's the truly Spirit-filled man. And at least once in the Gospels, Jesus is unable to do miracles in a particular place. And I think we can infer the Spirit of God restricted him at that point because of the lack of faith in the people in this particular place Jesus was unable to perform miracles. So Jesus, through his life, is completely and utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to be able to teach and lead and minister to his disciples and perform the incredible miracles that he performs. The Spirit is the driving force 
in Jesus' ministry. Now, turn back over to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. I want to focus here on a verse. It doesn't actually mention the Holy Spirit, but I would argue this is one of the most significant verses for understanding the work of the Spirit in relation to Jesus and us. Mark 14. Jesus here is in the Garden of Gethsemane, contemplating his own impending death. And he spends this time of, of prayer, in prayer to the Father, talking about this. Mark 14, verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now that phrase that Jesus uses here, Abba, Father, it's the only time, this and another parallel passage in the, in the other Gospels, this is the only time in his life that's recorded that Jesus uses this phrase to address God. Most of the time he talks about Father. But here he uses this term. What's going on? What is with this term Abba, Father? What's that band doing in this verse anyway? Abba, Abba is the most intimate term that you could use to address a father, that a child could use to address their father. The, it's very hard to translate, but probably the closest English equivalent is daddy. And you can hear it even in the sounds with Jewish kids, Jewish babies, toddlers, when they started to learn to speak, these were the sounds that they started to form when they addressed their father, Abba. You know, for us, it's daddy. For them, it was Abba. It was, it was the first way that they came to address their father, these simple syllables. And it expresses this beautiful, childlike intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. And I think we can conclude that just as the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do his miracles, equipped him to teach, now the Spirit of God is enabling him to have this incredible intimacy with his heavenly Father. The Spirit of God draws Jesus so near to the Father that he can call out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Jesus has told his disciples already, the only way you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven is to become like a child. And now Jesus does exactly that. He becomes a child, cries out, Abba, Father. This beautiful cry of just innocence, total dependence, total trust. This bond, this family bond between father and son that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 8. We're flicking through a few scriptures today, but here is where this gets really exciting, and here is where this becomes relevant to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The Spirit you received, talking about the Holy Spirit, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him, that is by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that fascinating? The only other time, as well as a parallel passage in Galatians, the only other time in the New Testament that this Abba, Father, shows up is now a prayer that we can pray. Just as Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, now we get to pray, Abba, Father. And the reason we get to pray it is because we have the Holy Spirit it is the Spirit of God that enables us to have the same intimacy 
with God the Father that Jesus himself had. That's how close the Spirit draws you to God. The Spirit enables you to, to, to take those same words on your lips that Jesus took and cry out, Abba, Father. Now, here's how this works. Paul says that when a person becomes a Christian, when a person turns their life toward God, the Spirit of God adopts us into God's family. The Spirit sort of draws us into this new family. But don't just think with that family that it's an earthly family made up of Christians. That's part of it. We do belong to this earthly family of believers, but there's more to it than that. The Spirit also draws us into a heavenly family, a heavenly family that is made up of Father and Son and Spirit. And within that family, there is this beautiful bond of love that we see expressed in Jesus' own words, this beautiful intimacy between the circle between Father and Son and Spirit, this beautiful exchange of love that's constantly going on. We can so easily think of God just as a static being, but God is a community of beings, and there is this constant interchange of delight and affection and love and intimacy flowing back and forth between Father and Son and Spirit, this family bond of love. And the miracle of our conversion is that the Holy Spirit descends down to fill our hearts, but that's only half the equation. The Spirit then lifts us into that family so that we can share in the love between Father, Son, and Spirit. That we can share in that family bond. The Spirit places us in Christ, and then by the Spirit, we share in that intimacy to God that Jesus has. It's not just that your relationship with God is like the one Jesus had. It's not just that you're sort of close to God like Jesus was. It's that because of the Holy Spirit living in you, you share in Jesus' own relationship with the Father. You are drawn into this beautiful circle of love and life and intimacy, and you get to bask in the love that is flowing back and forwards between Father and Son and Spirit. That's the gift of the Spirit who descends down into our hearts in order to lift our humanity up to participate in the life and love of God. For me, that's not just a whole new way of thinking about the Spirit. That's a whole new way of thinking about being a Christian. That I get to participate in this beautiful family love and the free flow of intimacy between Father and Son and Spirit. A few years ago, there was a book that came out called The Shack. Now, it's a bit controversial, this book, I know. Some of you might have read it. Some people are quite critical of it, and that, that's fine, uh, because of the fact that it depicts the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in, very, in a very creative way. Uh, the story is about a guy called Mac, whose daughter is abducted, and there's some evidence that shows up at this abandoned old shack in the wilderness that she might have been brutally murdered. And four years on from her murder, Mac gets a note in the letterbox, apparently from God, summoning him to the shack for a weekend at the shack. And as the novel unfolds, he goes to the shack and he meets there the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he spends the weekend with them. And the book really just describes the interplay between Father and Son and Spirit. Now, the reason that it's a little bit out there is because of the way that the persons of the Trinity are described. The father is an African-American woman called Papa. Okay? The son is a Jewish man, as you'd expect, Jesus. 
And the Holy Spirit is this small Asian woman called Sayaru. Okay, now just before you accuse the book of absolute heresy, you, I think you have to read the shack in the same way that you would read C.S. Lewis novels. It's allegory. Okay, and I really don't think that the book is saying that the Holy Spirit is literally a small Asian woman any more than C.S. Lewis is saying that Jesus is literally a lion called Aslan. Okay, that, that's not the point. The point is that these are imaginative representations of the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit, and deliberately a bit provocative to get us past some of the stereotypes that we commonly have of the persons of the Trinity. So this guy, Mac, spends the weekend just watching and listening and participating as these three people, Father, Son, and Spirit, interact with each other, play with each other, have fun together. At one point, Jesus drops a, 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 a bowl of sauce on the floor and it goes everywhere, it goes all over the Father, and they just erupt into laughter and there's this beautiful, spontaneous moment of, of intimacy and fun together. At another point, the Father, Papa, suggests that they do devotions together. And Max thinking, how's this going to work? God doing devotions with himself. Uh, but the devotions, it's not like pulling out the word for today. It's the members of the Trinity look into each other's faces and just speak encouragement to each other and just express love and express delight. To it. That's their devotions to each other. And Mac in this story is trying to figure all this out and how, does this, how you guys relate to each other and, and what does this mean? Let me just read you one extract from the book where he talks about his own understanding of this. I mean, Mac hurried on, I've always thought of God the Father as sort of being the boss and Jesus as the one following orders, you know, being obedient. I'm not sure how the Holy Spirit fits in exactly. He, I mean, she, uh, Mac tried not to look at Siaru as he stumbled for words. Whatever. The Spirit always seemed kind of uh, a free spirit, offered Papa. Exactly, a free spirit, but still under the direction of the Father. Does that make sense? Jesus looked over at Papa, obviously trying with some difficulty to maintain the perception of a very serious exterior. Does that make sense to you, Abba? Frankly, I haven't got a clue what this man is talking about. And then a little further on, Sayaru, the Holy Spirit, says, Mackenzie, we have no concept of final authority among us, only unity. We are in a circle of relationship, not a great chain of command or great chain of being, as your ancestors termed it. What you're seeing here is relationship without any overlay of power. We don't need power over the other because we're always looking out for the best. Hierarchy would make no sense among us. And so through the story, Mac, in a way, represents all of us. He gets to sit at the table and just watch and just see this exchange of delight and love and laughter and fun that's just going back and forwards and enveloping him as well that he gets to share in it. He represents every person, in a sense, who has this relationship with God, that we're there, we're at the table, and we get to cry out, Abba, Father, because that's the intimacy that we have. There's this beautiful circle of relationship that's going on, and we are now enfolded into it. Now, let me just flesh this out with one other scripture in case this sounds like it's a bit of a stretch from the way you're used to thinking about God. Turn over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, verse 3. <clears throat> Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great 
and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? That you may participate in the divine nature. He doesn't just say that you may have a relationship with God. He says you may participate in the divine nature. Now, one thing Peter is not saying here is that you may become gods yourselves. You have to be very careful of that. This is not deification. This is not human beings somehow becoming gods. We don't participate in God's essence. That belongs to God alone. We don't participate in God's being. That belongs to God, God, God alone. What we participate in through the Holy Spirit is God's nature. And what is God's nature? Love. Isn't that what 1 John says? God is love. It's His primary quality. That is His fundamental nature. We participate in the love that is shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. That love is personified, in a sense, by the Spirit. The love is so strong, He's a person. He's the Spirit. And we get to share in that love, enfolded into it. So please don't hear me saying we all become little gods. No, we get, by the Spirit, by God's divine power, to be enveloped and to bask and soak in this beautiful circle of relationship without any power or hierarchy, and just to enjoy it, and by the Spirit, in the midst of it, to cry out, Abba, Father, as an expression of our intimacy with God. So let me just try and make this practical, because I know I'm acutely aware that this can be very esoteric, and might just sound to you like it's an idea just floating above your heads that you just can't quite grab a hold of. As one way of earthing this in your life, simply try addressing God as Abba, Father. I don't know whether any of you have done this. It's a very biblical term that we can use and are clearly entitled to use for God. Romans, Galatians tells us that. So why not just try taking those words on your lips? Now, there's no magic power to those words any more than any other title. But just saying, Abba, Father, is going to help you become more aware of a few things. Firstly, it's going to help you become more aware of the intimacy that you already have with God, that you're just not aware of yet. You know, so often we try and feel close to God, and we, tr we feel far away, we try and get back, and we try and strive and, and, and get back close to God and back in His arms again. Abba Father reminds us, you're already there. You might not feel like you're there. You might feel like you're a chasm away from God, a billion miles away. But if you belong to Jesus... You are right now enfolded into this intimacy and you can cry out, Abba, Father. Just saying that word suddenly reminds you of this present reality. You're closer to God than you can possibly imagine. You are enfolded into the Son's own relationship with the Father by the Spirit. What a privilege. And speaking it just gets that into your gut a little bit more. Helps you become a bit more consciously aware of what is already true. You are incredibly close to God. And that's the gift of the Spirit. Especially those times when you just feel really far from God. Try that. Try taking Abba Father on your lips. The most intimate biblical title we have for God. And it's ours. Same one Jesus used. And it's ours by the Holy Spirit. Amazing gift. The other thing that Abba Father will do, hopefully, is help you to become a bit more aware of the persons of the Trinity in your relationship with God. That it gets you away from just praying to a generic blob in the sky called God. And it makes you a bit more aware that these are three persons, not three gods, one being, three persons. Abba Father 
means we're addressing God. Abba, Father, means we're praying Jesus' prayer. Abba, Father, is the gift of the Spirit who enables us to pray it. And I think over time, it's just going to help open you up to the circle of love that we're in the middle of, not just praying to one static being. Another area of our lives that this has implications for is our worship, our individual worship when we spend time with God on our own, and our gathered worship here on Sundays and in our life groups, any other contexts where worship takes place. Often when we think about worship, we think of it, I think of it, in a very kind of one-way sort of way. You know, we think of it's all going from us to God. We give God our praise. We give God our worship. We give God our, whatever, repentance, ourselves. And that's good as far as it goes. But I think this understanding of the Spirit's gift of enabling us to cry, Abba, Father, can open up a whole new understanding of what worship is. The theologian James Torrance describes worship this way. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. It's a world of meaning in that quote. Let's just leave that on the screen for a couple of minutes. Let's just soak that up. Worship, I mean, even the idea that worship is a gift is, is quite different, isn't it, to the way we think about worship? It's not something you need to conjure up, not something we construct, not something we just have to sort of muster up. It's a gift that is given to us by the Spirit. And worship is our gift of being caught up in this interplay of affection and delight and love that is going on between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That by the Spirit, we get to share in the Son's intimacy and communion with the Father. For me, that shifts the posture of my worship. That it's not just me leaning forward and reaching out for a God who's out there somewhere. But as much as that worship is, is leaning back, it's enjoyment isn't it? It's rest. It's not me trying to create something. It's me being drawn into something that's been going on for all eternity. The beautiful love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in these moments in particular, it's like we're just caught up into that stream and we just get to sit in it and enjoy it. Worship is gift. Worship is enjoyment. Worship is the Spirit's gift of grace to us, drawing us that close to God. And in particular, I think this should change the way that we see and approach the sacrament of communion. We take communion every week, and we rightly center our hearts and our minds in that time on Jesus. It's His death that we are commemorating. But when you think about it, why do we call it communion? Who's communing with who? As much as it's our communion with Jesus or with the Father, this is also about Jesus' own communion with God. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. He shared this intimate bond with his heavenly Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. He shared that intimacy with God, and then on the cross, he lost it. Now, that doesn't mean God abandoned him, but you find on the cross, Jesus goes from saying, Abba, in the garden to saying Elohim on the cross, the most distant term that he ever uses for God. Within the space of 24 hours, Jesus has lost that intimacy with his Father. The Father is still with him, but is not intervening to save him. And that loses the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. Even then, though, the Spirit is still present with Jesus 
in the absence of the Father's intervening help. And then as Jesus is raised from the dead, that intimacy is restored as Jesus ascends and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus has this incredible intimacy, this incredible communion with God. And when we come to the table, we are coming at the invitation of the Father. We are coming through the sacrifice of Jesus, whose death we remember and are nourished by. And we are coming in the power of the Spirit. We're coming because the Holy Spirit leads us to the table and enables us to sit down and just enjoy the Son's communion with His Father and enjoy our own communion with the Father because of what He has done for us. So when you take communion this morning, we're going to take it just a minute. I want to encourage you to think not only about Jesus, but also about the way the Father and the Spirit are relating to you and relating to one another as we take this meal. Maybe it'll be helpful for you just to sit there this morning with the juice and the wafer and just picture yourself literally sitting at a table, sitting at a family table. And around the table are the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They're all there. And just imagine, it's okay to use imagination, by the way, when it's grounded in biblical reality. And just imagine yourself soaking this up, listening and watching and being enfolded into the love that's being shared by Father and Son and Spirit. Just imagine being wrapped up in that and then their love being extended to you so that you can respond by crying out, Abba, Father. It may just transform this meal that we have every week as you're more aware of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So as we come to the table this morning, let's pray and prepare ourselves for that moment of worship. Holy Spirit, we thank you that by you we can cry out, Abba, Daddy. And it, it sounds strange, Lord, even to say that. But God, we just take this moment to remember how close we are to you. And regardless of how we're feeling this morning, regardless of how intimate our emotions feel. We just acknowledge that the gift of your spirit is to give us a closeness and a proximity to you that is equal to Jesus. God, these things are hard to understand, but anchor this reality in our life. May we be more aware as we pray, as we worship, as we take communion, as we relate to you every day, may we be more aware of the ways in which we are being enfolded into your love. And may we be able to cry out, Abba, Father, as a true expression of the genuine intimacy that we have with you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that unbelievable gift of nearness and closeness that you've brought us. Confirm it in our hearts as we share communion together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.